0: As I'm privileged to be here at Masters College and sit here with uh, another Harris friend. Rich Harris is one of my wife and I's friends. And another one is Jim Harris, who uh, teaches theology and uh, Greek here at Masters. Um, I think of what an unbelievable influence Jim was in my life. I met him when I was 30 years old. We had the privilege of being friends. And he was our pastor at Treasure Valley Bible Church in Boise, Idaho for 13 years. And uh, those were marvelous, marvelous uh, years. And so I feel like I'm with friends when I come to Master's College and to be sitting like a, a book between two bookends, Harris and Harris. Uh, so it is delightful. I'm going to just pick up one detail of my own life that you might or might not be interested in. And, uh, and that's how I became a Christian. And I tell the story because, uh, isn't it beautiful, uh, uh, salvation is by grace. I meet my wife first day of college. Uh, lo and behold, we date our freshman and junior years and get married the middle of our junior years in college. And uh, she had asked me if I was a Christian when we got married, and I said yes. And I truly thought I was. I was a member of the Congregational Church, and, and I couldn't think of something more in standing as far as being a good Christian than that. Could you? So anyway, yes. But uh, we're uh, on our honeymoon night. Uh, this is funny, at the Denver Hilton Hotel in Denver, uh, we're, uh, you know, you kind of look forward to your honeymoon night for a long time. And Mandy sits down on the edge of the bed and said, you know, I've always read the Bible before I've gone to bed. Could we start doing that tonight? And I thought, oh no, I mean, this is not exactly what I had in mind. Um, uh, so we uh, we began reading the Bible. And we started on our honeymoon night, and uh, we read then December, got married December 23rd, January, February, March, and sometime early in April, we're still busy finishing our junior years in college. I was an econ major, my wife was English and history, and uh, we get a knock on the door. We had a big collie at that time, and our neighbors, we were watching their German shepherd, and so we had two big dogs in a very, very small little house, and a knock on the door, and it's a pastor... From a church just down the street. And I didn't, never, he introduced himself. I'd never seen him before. And I said, well, come in. And he came in and the German shepherd and the collie just came rushing at him like that. And he goes, wham! (laughs) And catches the dog right under the chin. Just about killed the dog. And says, you know what the Bible says about dogs? (laughs) I said, no. And he said, the Bible says that dogs return to their vomit. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, I really like this guy. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? But that's the truth. Sat down. I was doing accounting on the kitchen table. He sits down, presents the four spiritual laws, and I become a Christian. You know, it wasn't because of him. I didn't like him at all. But uh, become a Christian. So I, I guess I open with that. Isn't it beautiful that uh, God can use uh, anyone and everyone. He doesn't use our great personality traits and all the things that we can bring to the table, but again, salvation by the grace of God. And so I'm very, very thankful that that April evening took place and that we, we joined his church. It was a small little church, and he plugged us right into the 5th and 6th graders and so for three years, as I finished a bachelor's and then a master's degree, my wife and I uh, taught the space explorers. They were called fifth and sixth grade. And I'm so thankful for that, that my wife, that we were plugged right into a church and get active and get busy. And so we kind of have stayed that way uh, through the 27 and a half years of our married life. Now, if Russell feels that he can get away with a football story, he says, ladies, you'll relate to this in a minute, then I feel I can start with one also. You've heard about the game between the big animals and the little animals in a football game. And as you would guess, by halftime, the big animals were just overpowering the little animals. In fact, the score was 46 to nothing in favor of the big animals at halftime. So the start of the second half... The little animals kicked off to the big animals, wouldn't you know it? So they got the ball, first and ten on the 20-yard line. On the first play, they gave it to the elephant around right end. The elephant, he's rumbling around right end. Bam! Down at the line of scrimmage, there was no gain. In the defensive huddle, the little squirrel, who was captain of the little animals, said, Who made that tackle? And the centipede said, It was me. All right. Second play, they gave it to the rhinoceros around left end. Bam, down at the line of scrimmage, no gain in the defense have huddled. The little squirrel said, Who made that tackle? And the centipede said, It was me. All right. Now this is a big play. Third and ten from the twenty. They gave it to the they gave it to the gorilla right up the middle. Bam, down at the line of scrimmage, no gain. The defensive The little squirrel said, Who made that tackle? The centipede said it was me. The little squirrel said, Hey man, where were you the first half? And the centipede said, taping my ankles. Well, uh, as, I share, as I share the text with you today. <laughs> thanks. Drum roll. Great. You know, um, before I read in Luke chapter 5, maybe just one other thing about uh, what uh, five other professors and I are involved in the past years, Uh, this think tank that uh, uh, Dr. Harris mentioned, the National Center for Policy Analysis. We, We are a group of economists that have been writing in the area of privatization for 15 to 20 years. We've written papers like privatizing the postal service, privatizing public schools, privatizing social security, privatizing the welfare system, privatizing Yellowstone National Park, privatizing prisons, privatizing Conrail and Amtrak. And so our area has been privatization for 20 years. And we figured in 1983 that it was really time that we put together, you call it a think tank, I don't know what a better word is, I suppose. And we uh, write position papers and send them to members of Congress in this area. That's our niche, privatization. And so we've done that. We've done about 140 position papers. And then if members of Congress or the cabinet call us, we're happy to go back and testify. It is such an exciting uh, phenomena that when we started writing on privatization 15, 20 years ago, people didn't even know what it meant. And if you talked about privatizing the Postal Service, they would say, why? Why would you want to... privatize? And and now people have come to understand the Postal Service really is an oxymoron. Kind of like saying jumbo shrimp or military intelligence or pretty ugly. Uh, You try saying Postal Service and not get a smile on your face. But anyway, it's so exciting to see the events not only in our own country, but throughout the world move towards privatization. That is... Get the activity out of the hands of government into the hands of the private sector. So, uh, I'll say a little bit more about that. Now, as we read the text, I want to tell you where I'm going and give you the end story before we start. I'm going to read in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 11, maybe 1 through 11. Let's pick it up right at the start. Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11. And I'll tell you right now that we want to head towards those that verse in, chat, in verse 10 where Jesus said, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. Instead of becoming fishers of fish, you will become fishers of men and women. And when I get to that, it's at that stage I want to then back off from the text and say, Okay, we live uh, in Southern California as students in 1990, March and where are we where is this world what kind of men and women are we talking about and i just want to have the privilege and it is that a privilege to put uh, the globe in a sense in a bit of context so i'll make a few comments about some of the verses as we go to verse 10 but that's where i want to go and then of course verse 11 the disciples, they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. What does that mean in 1990 to really, really follow Jesus? And the text reads this way then, starting with verse one, and I'll read all 11. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats Lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And they got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night. And caught nothing, but at your bidding, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And then verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So reading those 11 verses, if you were invited to come to the microphone and said, well, kind of, what's the What's the essence of those 11 verses? Uh, Some of you would come up and say, well, I think one of the essences is that if you're going to go fishing, make sure you fish with Jesus, because that ain't bad. I mean, that must be a fisherman's dream to (laughs) catch so many fish that the boat almost sinks. That has never happened to me, I might say. As a matter of fact, when I go trout fishing, I feel very lucky when I come home and have a couple of 10 to 11 inchers. Uh, well, anyway, so that might be in essence uh, that go fishing with Jesus. Another a point that might come out of these verses is that when Jesus says to go into a deeper part of the lake and drop the nets, you obey because it really works. We like to be pragmatic. We like to do what works. And Simon was not, Simon Peter was not reluctant whatsoever to go to a deeper part of the lake and drop the nets and wham, they come into a great quantity of fish. I get a kick out of Peter as before in verse 5 he calls Jesus master, but then after the big catch of fish in verse 8 he calls Jesus Lord. I was thinking how many people really can capture the word master, uh, master teachers, master craftsmen, uh, master slave. A lot of people feel that their bosses are their masters. And so you can almost get away. Certainly the communist world would believe that the communist government and in the case of China and the Soviet Union, the Politburo, who make all the economic decisions, certainly they're the master. So a number of folks down through the ages have taken on the title of uh, 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 master. But I'll tell you, when you change it from master to lord, that's a different situation. And Peter was so amazed at this that he just bows down and calls him lord. Peter really realized that God was in the boat with him. And Peter does something else in verse 8. He confesses. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Having been a Christian for 27 years, I would share with you that here's what kind of you come to a recognition of, and it becomes clearer and clearer the older one gets as far as being a Christian. And that is the real sinfulness of sin and the fact that the closer we get to Jesus when He's truly in our boat, the more our sin really shows. Jesus is perfection. The good one, the pure one, the righteous one, the truth and the light and all of those words certainly don't fit me very well. And the closer I come to Jesus, the more that I would echo the thoughts of the Apostle Paul when he came to the end of his ministry and called himself the greatest of sinners. That just seems so funny. Paul, you're one of our idols. Paul, we love your writings of the New Testament and the example that you set for each one of us. But at the end of your ministry, Paul, talking about the greatest of sinners, but there's something about the Christian walk that does that for you. There's something about the Christian walk and growing closer and closer to Jesus that you really see that at the very root of your soul you want to gossip. At the very roots of what you're about there is pride there and it's always wanting to raise its head and snare you. There is lust in men and women's hearts that is a profound uh, force on people, there's an envy. There's an envy that uh, we, we look at what other peoples do and say. And I sit here and listen to that marvelous uh, pianist. And I think, golly, I would give anything to play the piano like that. And hopefully the feeling was not envy, but pride in him. But uh, many times our attitudes are, if I just had what he had and he had a feather up his nose, we'd both be tickled. Uh, There's something that envy becomes so powerful towards us. I think it's why that God in the Ten Commandments, uh, with the Tenth Commandment, said, Thou shalt not covet. Ladies and gentlemen and students of masters, I tell you, uh, greed is a nasty phenomenon. No question, greed. But interestingly, envy is every bit as bad. In fact, I think God blankets the Ten Commandments with, Thou shalt not covet. The neighbor's wife. Uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Always coveting. Always something God covers them beautifully in that. So uh, the apostle uh, so Peter. He saw Jesus. Jesus was in the boat with him. Jesus, They caught all those fish. And he just knees to, kneels down to Jesus and says, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Then we move through the text. And Jesus said, now listen. Do not fear. From now on, we're not going to be talking about catching fish as we are going to be talking about catching men, catching women. I would like to put today's times in a bit of context. You know, it wasn't very long ago that almost all of us are in agriculture. In fact, at the turn of the century, 60 million of us were still in agriculture. But what's happened to agriculture? It's become very productive. Chemical insecticides built right into the seed, hybrid revolution, green revolution, uh, the whole uh, 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 sprinkler systems replacing flood irrigation. What's the point of all that? One farmer feeds hundreds, if not thousands. So in the United States, it just isn't going to take very many farmers. In the last 90 years, we've gone from 60 million, uh, excuse me, 30 million, down to now there's 3 million. And it's not going to be many more years and that we'll have one million farmers. And a few years after that, a half a million farmers will be able to feed all of us, plus some of the rest of the world. So my point is, we're not going to be much of an agrarian agricultural nation, although we'll grow lots of agricultural products and still be one of the best. Very few of us will be employed in agriculture, in fact. There's even some possibility that within the next 25 years, we won't even use dirt as a medium to grow food anymore. But it'll be hydroponics and protein-based water systems that you don't even need ground and dirt. Imagine the transformation that takes place as that all comes on. Well, then will we be in manufacturing? No. The same story. It's all going to technology and robotics. If you go to the General Electric plant in Louisville, Kentucky, here's a plant that produces refrigerators and dishwashers. It's about uh, four blocks long, four stories high, and it produces three refrigerators a minute, 24 hours a day, all with robotics, all with machinery, all with technology, and there's just a few people with white coats running around the factory. It's unbelievable. So will America still be a great manufacturing nation, yes. But will many people be employed in manufacturing? General Motors right now is in the process of building a peopleless automobile plant. So it's obvious which way this is going. Manufacturing will be increasingly technological, and it won't employ many of us. So you say, listen. If we're not going to be in agriculture and if we're not going to be in manufacturing, where are we all going to work? And so my answer is, listen up. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I really don't. <laughs> uh, that wasn't much of a climax, was it? But I, uh, I don't know where we'll we all be working. But I knew this: that when Thomas, <laughs> oh great, he got it. But, uh, when Thomas Edison. When Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, at the time that Edison invented the light bulb, there were 130,000 people employed in the candle making industry. What's going to happen to those 130,000 people in the candle making industry? Well, uh, personally, I'm glad that Thomas invented the light bulb. Why, uh, if it wasn't for Tom's light bulb, we'd all be watching television by candlelight. So I'm pleased (laughs) that he did. Uh, It's so interesting to me, though, how negative, and maybe you follow newspapers, the Los Angeles Times and others enough to see that newspapers always seem to be quite negative. They seem to always be in the process of Blowing out the candles and then telling us how dark it is. It's always the bad news that makes the headlines. I'll guarantee you if CBS Evening News was there to see Thomas Edison talking about the light bulb, tonight on the news Dan Rather would look the camera right in the eye and say, Tragedy strikes the candle industry. And so the rest of the evening news would be on the candle industry instead of lights. I'm I'm convinced that if the Los Angeles Times were there to record the event of Jesus walking on the water, tonight or tomorrow morning in the Los Angeles Times, the, the headline would read, Jesus can't swim. That's the way they seem to look at events. You know, and I have to be honest with you. I have to be honest with you, most economists, most economists, you know, it's always, there's good news happening. Uh, uh, Students, this has been an eight-year business expansion. The fact is, heads of households employed is an all-time high. Median family incomes are an all-time high. Inflation rates have been cut from 13.5% down to 4.5%. The United States has generated 20 million new jobs since third quarter, 1982. The economic statistics roll on and on, but most economists, they just continue to be negative. They've predicted eight of the last three recessions. Uh, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that most economists, most economists become economists, because they don't have the personality to become accountants. (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, It's been said, (laughs) what would you have if you threw a thousand economists into the ocean? And the answer is, you would have a very good start. Well, anyway. (laughs) Folks, really, we're moving to a country, and for that matter, moving to a globe where brains are replacing BTU's. Brains are replacing oil and natural gas. This economy is producing 20% more gross national product today than it did 10 years ago using exactly the same amount of oil and natural gas. Information is replacing raw materials. Uh, When I was a kid growing up, my parents bought a set of Encyclopedia Britannica 35-volume set. I think they must have paid about $300 back in those days. Today, the entire set of Encyclopedia Britannica on a few floppy disks for $19.95. Information is replacing raw materials. When I was a graduate student, I had a calculator sitting on my desk. It weighed about 35 pounds. You would hit that thing and go, and if you had it sitting next to a wall, literally, it would pound a hole in the wall. And some of you older remember those days of that calculator. Now I have in my billfold a calculator that weighs about an ounce that will do a lot more than that 35-pound calculator did. Students, information is replacing raw materials 80% of the price of a set of pots and pans was raw materials 40% of the price of a new automobile raw materials but only 2% of the price of an integrated circuit raw materials we used to create wealth by taking iron ore from the masabi range Putting it into rail cars, taking it to Pittsburgh, and converting it into steel. Today, we can create wealth and value by moving information from one location to another. There is more wealth moving through the telecommunication system in one day than all the super tankers of the world in one year. So there's the world we're beginning to face. A world that really uh, 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 sits on the back, you might say, of the silicon chip and the microprocessor. The interesting thing about the chip, I was speaking to the IBM Corporation in New Jersey a few weeks ago, and a typical chip right now has a couple million switches on it. Million switches. They're talking about a chip in the next five years of having a billion switches on it. I have to admit something to you. I have a hard time comprehending something that is about the size, something about the size of your thumbnail that can do one billion calculations in one tenth of a second. Uh, students, you know, we really enter a stage in this economy that we're talking about where, where literally microns of switches on a spot of silicon, no wider than the wing of a fleet, is leaving all of history in its wake. But as I say that, and as I talk about the computer as a great brain, let me share something with you that's a personal opinion. The computer is not the mind. It might be a great brain, but it doesn't vision and think and create and pray. So in my opinion, the computer for the most part will always be dumb and the real wealth of a nation is its people. The real wealth is spiritual. The real wealth is the mind. Real wealth is what you are having the opportunity to do the four years you're at Masters. And that is think, and create, and verbalize, and write, and be active in the head, and most importantly, active in a way that has a focus. And the focus, of course, is the God of this universe, Jesus Christ. So, yes, an information economy. Yes, the silicon chip. But a world that we're moving into that increasingly most of the jobs won't be in agriculture. Most of the jobs will not be in manufacturing. Most of the jobs will be in the service economy, the people business. About 70% of the economy is now in the service economy, and it won't be long that it'll be about 90%. And now here's the difference. When we were in the agricultural economy... Or the manufacturing economy, you train a person, then if you pay them twice a month and give them their gold watch at the end of 20, 30 years, that's about your only contact. But now, it's emotional labor. In 1950, 70% of the jobs were hands-on jobs, and only 30% were mind jobs. Now it's just reversed. It's 1990, and over 70% of the jobs are mind jobs, and only 30% of the jobs are hands-on jobs, and it's going to increase intensify in that direction. The mind, thinking, and emotional labor force. No matter what you choose then, in any kind of a field, whether you choose the ministry or choose business or choose teaching or anything, you really are involved with people one-to-one on an emotional basis. And it's why the leadership of our country and the leadership that you're going to be providing is a leadership that really cares about people, is a leadership that inspires commitment, is a leadership that empowers, it's a leadership that will come from you that your job, whatever it will be as you go out, is to make everybody else successful. Where your job is not an inward focus. But an outward. Call it participative management. Call it empowering. Call it tutoring. Call it teaching. Call it whatever you want. But it's how can I help you become what God wants you to be? How can I help you in your economic endeavors to become as successful as you can possibly be? And the focus is outward. Not inward. The inward one is the spiritual. The inward one is God, change me. But as we look at this world then, it increasingly is going to be nose to nose and highly personal. And here's the point. There's no faking it. Words are cheap. The point on, on on verse 10 is this. Fishers of men, how? Well, just as Jesus shared with us how in Matthew uh, 22, when he says this, Matthew 22, and you're familiar with the verses 37, 38, and 39. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus wrap it up for us, no one is saying that is easy. No one in here has even said that they haven't heard that, uh, that text a, a thousand times before. But sometimes we have to be reminded of what we already know. And that is God has really called us to love Him. To love Him. To fill our spiritual gas tanks. To be people of integrity and character. And to be people of in- character and integrity, it, every choice that you make is an important one. Every choice has a consequence. And so when we do what's right, when we do what's good, when we serve as Jesus has called us to serve, we're making we're making choices that really determine who and what we are reputation is what others say you are character is what you are and certainly I'm not here to put down mr. Cunningham or mr. Simpson or or, or mr. Garrett but interestingly if reading the newspapers I'm correct uh, I'll tell you, I'm very impressed with their reputations. And they have accomplished a lot. But as far as men, as far as husbands, as far as fathers, give me a break. Give me a break. And so, not to point the critical finger, but really, God does not care about those kinds of statistics He only cares about what we are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. God says, you know, I a lot of times find out what you are by when you're bumped, I just look and see what you spill. And there's what it is. Now, a lot of you just came back from spring break it's kind of hard so it's wonderful going home and open that refrigerator isn't it and it's wonderful going home and being with mom and dad and at least the first 5 minutes are terrific but isn't it funny now you're all kind of becoming independent and going out on your own and uh, there is some there are some points of uh uh, uh should i say conflict uh in some of you maybe relate to that there really are but listen if All of this means anything at Masters. Then it's when your mom or your dad suggests something, tells you something, tries to teach you, it seems like parents are always in a teaching mode. I, I mean, two children do the very same thing. My son often says, Dad, I asked you what time it was. I didn't ask you how to build a clock. So I'm as guilty as everyone. But the point is, as parents here's how we can find out how you're doing spiritually. You come home, and now there's a point of conflict, i.e., you've been bumped. You've been bumped. Anybody can be all nice, love, joy, peace, patience, all that when everything's going great. But how about when you're bumped, what do you spill? And there's where some of you over spring break passed with flying colors, and your parents said, I'm so glad Johnny or Jody goes to masters because they're they're maturing, they're learning, they're growing, praise God. Some of you, however, <laughs> got bumped and it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. So no one says this is easy. Loving God, loving others. No one but believe me, it's capsulized in that. Love God. Make Christ the central thing. Make Jesus the central focus of life. Have everything come through to have the very mind of Christ. Matthew 6.33 Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things. Seek ye first, see. Conform to the image of Christ. Be like Him. For me to live as Christ, to die as game. Now, see, words are cheap again. Words, so what? So the test becomes you hear them, you either believe them or you don't, and then you get a chance to obey. But your big chance to obey will be at the point of when you're bumped. What kind of a world? A world that isn't that impressed with words, but a world that is very impressed with behavior. You don't have to be with people very long to see if they're people of integrity and people of character. And where does that come from? Well, I have to believe it comes from the very life of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit, making us lovers of God and lovers of our neighbors, lovers of friends, but lovers of our enemies. So I think that's really where we are. Back to how to become fishers of men to understand that our first and primary task is to make decision after decision, choice after choice that reflects the beauty of Christ, that reflects Him, and that we can be a reflection of Him as the Holy Spirit lives in our life. I'm going to look at my watch. Uh, How long do I have yet? I, I'm supposed to be down at what time? Okay, thanks, thanks, uh, Rich. Uh, I, I think of Jesus in Mark chapter 9 when he went up uh, with Peter, James, and John and, and met Moses, Elisha, and God at the Mount of Transfiguration. Wouldn't, wouldn't, now, wouldn't that be a meeting of the minds? Think of it. Peter, James, John, Jesus, God, Moses, Elijah. I mean, you know, you add Jim and Rich Harrison, you've got the whole thing filled out here. <laughs> So, you have to say, from Peter's point of view, and the disciples, James and John, this must have been literally a mountaintop experience as they're up there together, fellowshipping and sharing in conversation, and, and, and I could just hardly wait to get to heaven and ask these dudes of, about this meeting with Jesus and God up there. Okay. But they come down the mountain in Mark chapter 9, and wouldn't you know... The disciples are kind of fighting. And who's going to be the greatest? And the people are wanting to be healed. And so they come off this mountaintop experience and they get down there. And indeed, they see a mess. Wouldn't you want to just go right back up the mountain again? I mean, certainly, mountaintop experiences for me are like this morning when I got to sit here and sing the songs and listen to you sing. My heart just... Lord, just take me home. I mean, if I could listen to the master's folks sing now, just sing me all the way to heaven. It's a mountaintop experience. But the fact is, I get on an airplane here in a little bit, and I go back, and I run right into my senior son in high school and a 13-year-old daughter. Some of you women have been 13. So you can appreciate uh, and pray for me. So I, I, I won't be home very long. And it'll be bumps, so words, words, oh, you stand in front of master students and it's fun and you sing and you're with old friends and you open the Word of God and you look at the book of Luke and you talk and remind students uh, to love God and to love others and that's the essence. We say it's hard to do, etc. But then the test comes for me, probably as early as supper time tonight for me, and it comes for you. So we come into the reality. So they come down. But that's where the world is. Not on the mountaintops. Not singing at Masters. But it won't be very long. You'll have some tests coming up. That's not pretty. It won't be very long. Back to summer jobs. All the temptations. All, in, in, the, in a sense, the evils of the world. Sometimes that is not very pretty. And then your jobs and then your responsibilities and then your marriages. Uh, let me tell you, it's really something to put two sinners under one roof. It's enough to put one in there. Uh, but you put two and you've really got something. So, But that's life. So they come down the mountain and people are needing healing. Now, it seems to me that Jesus could have looked at this people and sick people everywhere, and He could have snapped His fingers and said, Be healed. Be healed and be done with it. But He looks over the needs, the needs, the needs. A needy crowd. And Jesus sees a man with a convulsing boy. And Jesus says, Bring me the boy. And he talks to the father and finds out how long the boy's been sick. And he heals him. And that's the end of that little Mark chapter 9 account. Bring me the boy. Bring me the girl. Here's reality. And the reality is this. That we don't very often get a chance To touch the many. But we almost always get a chance to touch one. Nose to nose. Personal. I care about you. I love you. So the Christian walk becomes a balance between praying for our friends in Spain And praying for that country that, as you saw the statistic, 0.34% evangelical, which is another way of saying not many of the folks in Spain know Jesus the way you and I know Jesus. And so what a needy, needy country. Some of you will be called to Spain So the balance is though praying for those missionaries and praying for Spain and praying for a lost world and prayer is crucial and that balance between not being so caught up in things across the sea that we neglect our roommate this afternoon, our wife or husband this afternoon, our children, our friends, our moms and our dads who are needy also. Not so caught up with Spain that you forget your rheumatism mother sitting across the table just a few days ago. See, your job and my job becomes one of saying bring me the boy. Bring me the girl. God, help me make a difference in somebody's life as as I touch them on a regular basis. And then God, give me the vision that can be imparted at a place like Master's, where I have a burden for Spain and the world. And now just use me, Lord. I can't change the world, but You can. I can't touch very many, but You can. And so, Lord, let me have You for my example. That after a busy day, the first chapter of Mark, also the account that just precedes this one as a matter of fact, the last 20 verses of chapter 4 of Luke. Busy day in the life of Christ. Busy day. But the Bible says that long before daybreak, Jesus got up and he prayed. Students at Masters, becoming men and women of prayer will be the most important One of the most important choices that you make. Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you today. It has been delightful, and I guess my charge and instruction now is to close in prayer, and I'm just so pleased to do that.